Our passage this morning comes from the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 27. The word of God says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the Lord's day and the opportunity to hear from your word. We thank you that our Lord Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, and we ask that you speak through Dan this morning to shine your light brightly into our hearts and minds. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So as we have spoken, Mark, at this point in the gospel, is beginning to stack some stories, some episodes back to back to back to back to back, not necessarily, not necessarily chronologically and not with very much detail, but that the impact of these stories on top of one another would instruct and teach us and really answer the question that Mark is at through his entire gospel, and that is, who is Jesus? Which from the very beginning, the answer is a resounding, he is the son of God. And so from the event, as the paralytic man was was dropped down through the ceiling and lowered down in front of Jesus. And Jesus sees the man there and pronounces, your sins are forgiven. And in that moment, in that moment of announcing his authority, that not just a miracle worker, but indeed one who could forgive sins, that is the Son of God, we have seen that from that point on, really the shadow of the cross falls across Jesus' ministry because it has raised the anger of the religious leaders that Jesus would claim this. And he's going to come into conflict then with those religious leaders. And the shadow of the cross falls over Jesus because we understand at this point, reading the gospel, what it means to have our sins forgiven and what that is going to take, the death of Christ himself. And so as the shadow of the cross falls across Jesus' ministry, he comes into conflict with the religious leaders. And so we see that there with the paralytic man as he pronounces, your sins are forgiven. And then he confirms that indeed he has the power to forgive sins as he heals the man. And then it moves on and he goes and he finds Matthew, the tax collector, or Levi, another name he is called by. And he calls him to be his disciple. And we remember the tax collector, a class of people whom people, who the bystanders were shocked that Jesus would call someone like that to be his disciple. And then Jesus shows up with other tax collectors and sinners. He sees a table with them, dining and eating. The Pharisees see it and they can't believe what is taking place. How dare he dine with sinners? And as a congregation full of sinners, we are thankful he does. Jesus pronounces he has not come to save the righteous, those who feel like they can reach righteousness on their own, those who feel like they can have access to God because of their own works, but he has come to save sinners. A doctor comes for the sick, and so he has come to save sinners, and the conflict grows. Then it moves into the area of fasting as the Pharisees onlookers see again that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting like the Jewish people or even like John the Baptist's disciples. Why aren't they fasting? And Jesus makes a pronouncement again claiming his deity that the groom has come for his bride. The wedding feast is here. 
The Old Testament speaks of the groom as God. Jesus claiming that position now that he has come for his bride. It's not a time for fasting. It is a time for feasting and a time for rejoicing. There will be a time for fasting. Christ is not here with us now. It's an appropriate time for fasting. So Jesus is not here speaking against fasting, but instead announcing his presence and that now is the time for rejoicing. Now is the time for celebration. And you begin to see at this point, and it will really continue this morning as we look at the last two of these five episodes of conflict, In this moment, we begin to see what's really at stake here is how the Pharisees and the religious leaders approach the law of God and how Jesus is. Jesus is not undermining the law. He's not saying that it is insignificant. In fact, he has come to fulfill it. He is is explaining its intent. But these Pharisees, what they're doing is, is they're seeking to keep the law, to be righteous by adding more law. So there's a law, and they think, how can we keep this law of God? Well, let's establish some traditions as a hedge around it, and then some traditions around that. And and before long, these traditions begin to grow and grow and grow and grow, and they're seeking righteousness. They're seeking acceptance to God through keeping not the law initially, but by keeping all of these new traditions that they have added to the law, and they begin to judge others by this. And Jesus is saying... That is not the intent of the law. The the law exposes that indeed no man is righteous, every man is a sinner, and that I have come to save sinners. That he will keep the law. He will die the death we deserve, live the life we should be living, die the death we will deserve. And so he points to this major difference in the tradition of the Pharisees and the adding more law instead of looking to Christ as the fulfillment of the law. And so these last two scenes that we will look at just for a few moments before we come to the table this morning deal with Sabbath. <clears throat> Sabbath, this day of rest, was simply part of the way of life for the Jews, for an Orthodox Jew, it would be at the very core of their identity. It would set the pattern, the routine of their life would revolve around Sabbath. And so we see Sabbath introduced in creation. The Lord created, and then on the final day, he had a day of rest, and he blessed that day. He set it apart as holy. And then it's codified in the law of Moses when you get to uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus And even there in the law, it's still grounded, though, in that creational ordinance, God setting apart as holy. You come to Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 5, Moses speaks of Sabbath as a day that we remember that indeed God, looking back, that God was the creator. He finished his work of creation and looking forward that God is our salvation, that we rest from our own labors and our own work. And we rest in the work and the accomplishments of God for us. So the Pharisees would have observed the Sabbath. We come to our text beginning in verse 23 of chapter 2. The fourth of these five scenes. It says, one Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. 
And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're making their way through this field and and his disciples are, are plucking a little bit of grain as they go. Now the issue here is not stealing. It's not that, oh man, they got caught sneaking someone else's grain. We, <clears throat> where we live on our street, the houses are, are fairly close, the yards aren't real big, and so any bit of land is kind of prized. And there's this little section in our sidewalk, maybe four or five houses down, it's like eight feet long, maybe 16 inches wide of dirt. And someone's made it into a pretty little flower bed, one of our neighbors. So they have a bunch of little flowers in the middle. <clears throat> a few years ago, they had sunflowers. If you know, there's like, I mean, they're like six feet tall, maybe like three sunflowers growing up in the middle of it. And our kids were outside playing. I won't say who, but she was out on the sidewalk and down our neighbors and comes back excited. Look what I have for mom. She's holding a three foot long sunflower. Now, like the little flowers you could probably get away with, right? Sneaking one. But when you have three six-foot sunflowers, and now there's like two and a half, <laughs> there's no getting away with that. That's not what's going on here. They weren't like sneaking someone else's grain. It was, it was the law of the land that <clears throat> the fields would be harvested, and if there were some left over, people were welcome to that, and they were come and they were plucking some. What's at stake here is the Pharisees are saying, are they working? We're supposed to rest from our work. What they're doing is reaping. I mean, at best, this is a gray area, but <laughs> really? You understand, again, the Pharisees, as, as they come to the law, there's not really a comprehensive word on what it means to work. And so they think, okay, well, let's make sure we get this right. What does it mean to work? And so they start adding things. Okay, this is what work is. And they come up with a list of 39 things, and each of them have major subsets underneath of them. It's called the Halakha. And then they take the Mishnah as a, as a book that then kind of codifies this and a bunch of other things on how do we keep the law. Well, let's add a whole bunch more laws. And so... At heart, I think the motive is they want to honor the law, so we don't want to just roll our eyes at it. But when you start seeing some of the things, so what does it mean? Okay, you can't carry something in your pocket that's heavier than a fig. You cannot, if a stitch breaks, you can fix that stitch, but if two stitches break, you can only fix one of them. You can take 1,999 steps, we take 2,000, that's a journey. And so they start to just add all of these things of what does it mean to, to work? And it just becomes this very cumbersome thing. And so due to the, all of their traditions and extra rules for to see these disciples walking through, well, maybe they're sitting there counting the steps of Jesus' disciples. They see them pluck some grain. Oh, is that reaping? Well, how many did they... And so this is what is at stake when they say, why are you breaking, violating the Sabbath? You're working here on the Sabbath. Just a comment, when, when religion is devoid of the gospel, this is kind of what it devolves to. It is, I'm right with God by doing the right thing, and so I need details 
What do I do and what do I not do? And I need more and more details to be right with God. You remember the story of the, the Good Samaritan. That Before he even gets to the parable of the Samaritan, the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus, well, how are we, what do we need to do to be justified? Already the question is asked wrong. What do we need to do to be justified? So Jesus is saying how you can't do anything. You would have to love God with everything that's in you and you'd have to love your neighbor perfectly as yourself. So their thinking is, okay, well, who's my neighbor then? How do I, how do I love them? Give me the details and I'll do it. And religion without the gospel devolves to that. But Jesus responds, and he responds to them by referring to a story from 1 Samuel 21. We won't turn there. He kind of gives a little overview of it. If you read in verse 25 of Mark 2, quoting from 1 Samuel 21, he says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. The story, David has been anointed as king, but Saul is not done reigning yet, and he is not happy about this, and he's pursuing David and his men, and David and his men are fleeing and they're tired, and they're hungry, and they, they come into the, the land of Nob, and they enter there, find some food, and the priest has no food except this bread of the presence that is exchanged every Sabbath with fresh bread. And the only one who can eat that is the priest. So David asks Ahimelech, the, the priest at that time, can we have this bread to eat? And they end up eating it. And from the passage there in 1 Samuel, you see that it was appropriate. Himelech is not chastised for what he did. And David was appropriate in taking that, that bread and passing it along. And so it's kind of Jesus here is using this as, as precedent. And in using it as precedent, he is <laughs> claiming the same authority, or a greater authority really, than David would have. If, if the priests can make this call on this bread, if David as the king has authority to do this, I'm telling you, I have authority to determine what is lawful and unlawful on Sabbath. I am not constrained to your tradition that you add to the law. All of the extra things that you have put around it to make sure we don't break it, I'm not constrained to that. I'm telling you, I have the authority to tell you what is lawful and unlawful. And this walking through the field and the grain, we see that's not an unlawful act on the Sabbath. And so then he comes back to them, verse 27. First, I just want to highlight how dangerous this mindset is. And yet we can fall into it because we want to be able to measure ourselves, measure our justification, measure how we're doing in sanctification, measure these things. And it's easier to measure things by a a list of do's and don'ts. If I can just not do this and do this, then I'll be right. And it becomes very dangerous when we think we can find righteousness, we think we can find acceptance with God through our performance. And so we just keep adding more and more boundaries and layers to protect ourselves, that somehow that will make us righteous. 
There are times where it is wise in life with temptations that you struggle with that you set extra hedges around to help you in that fight against sin. But those hedges don't make you righteous. Setting those hedges can't just be applied to everyone else. Even if you're able to not jump over those hedges, that's not what makes you righteous. That's not what wins your acceptance with God. It is Christ alone. And there can be a temptation that it's hard to trust in the grace of God. And so we want to set hedges for everybody else and judge them by the traditions that, that we set. Or we want to rely on those things for our own righteousness. And it's a dangerous mindset to be in. And so Jesus responds in verse 27 and he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. <clears throat> You understand, Jesus is not undermining or saying there's anything wrong with the Sabbath. He's, he's explaining what is the intent of it. The Sabbath was provided by God to meet our needs of rest from our labors and to remind us of our greatest need, point to our deeper spiritual need that we must rest in him. The Sabbath was, is a blessing that is given to us. It is a blessing that is given to us to meet both temporal needs and eternal needs. It's not just a restriction that should be reduced to rule keeping. The Pharisees were making the Sabbath a burden. How are you enjoying the Sabbath when you're counting your steps and you're deciding if this thing in my pocket is bigger than a fig? All of these things. They've missed the point of it. The Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. It is meant to be a blessing. It is what we receive. It is what is given to us through Christ. Not what we have to refrain from at the heart of the Sabbath. The first question that should be asked is not, what can we not do? <laughs> it is, how is God going to give me rest and grace on this Lord's day. It is a blessing, not a burden. And Jesus continues, the Sabbath was made for man, <clears throat> not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, coming back to the kingdom as the rule and reign of Jesus and his presence as the presence of the kingdom. If Sabbath is for the benefit of mankind and Jesus is the King, the Lord of all mankind, then certainly He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is sovereign of the Sabbath. It is a declaration of His authority once again. Not only does Jesus have the right to call whom He wills to Himself to follow Him, whether approved by man or not. Not only does he have the right to grant cleansing, the right to forgive sins, but he also is the authority, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath. He blessed it in creation. And he is sovereign of the Sabbath. We'll look a little bit more what that means in just a moment. 
So in this declaration of his authority, then we then move to the second scene where now he is going to display this authority to show us exactly what it means that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So the scene two, again, he entered the synagogue. Now this may be the same day. It may be a different um, Sabbath day. Again, Mark, not big on details. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. There's the Pharisees there. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're just, there's no good faith here. They're sitting there watching to see what happens. Again, we made this distinction between the followers of Jesus and those that just observe him from afar. The Pharisees not following him, just watching. Verse 3. Jesus is not going to go quietly in this. In verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Brings him, draws all the attention to him. In verse 4, he asks the Pharisees this. He says, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Jesus kind of ironically here is looking at them and saying, on this, this very Sabbath day, when I can do good, when I can bring healing, when I can bring renewal, when I can bring joy to this man, on this very day when I can be, do good, you're sitting here judging me for that. You are, are sitting there and in your heart doing evil, planning my demise, planning my destruction. Which is right, you're, you're judging me for something a good act I can do, and in your heart you are being evil doing it. Just the hypocrisy of that situation. I would say that it's easier to act like a Pharisee than we think. it's, It's easy to look and see the sins of another and to really judge what they're doing and at the same time have our heart full of sin itself. We see that in Christ's teaching about, you know, we have the the plank hanging out of our eye and we're walking around saying, oh, there's a speck in your eye, you better take care of that. Unaware of the own plank that we have in our own eye. The Pharisees are devising evil in their hearts and as they're devising evil, judging what Jesus might do on a Sabbath day. And he calls them out for that, asks which is better, to do good or to do harm? What do you think the Sabbath day is for, to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Have you really missed the intent, the heart of the Sabbath so much that you think it's better to do evil and to plan someone's death than it is to do good and to bring life? They're silent, so Jesus looks around at the rest of the group there. They're all silent. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. The same sort of of reaction we have seen from Jesus in chapter 1 when the leper comes to him. 
And it says that he's moved with pity, but it's this, this sort of anger and pity combined. When he sees just how upside down creation has become because of sin, just the ugliness of the curse. And as he has come and he's declaring the kingdom and he, is, and he is bringing the kingdom and he sees the ugliness of the darkness, it, it moves him with this anger and at the same time pity. He, he's grieved in his heart for the blindness of these people, the hardness of their heart. And you see this emotion arise in him. He's grieved at the hardness of their heart, verse 5, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand is restored. I I think that the profound lesson here, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, because it is Jesus that brings the joy and the blessings and the rest. He's the one who brings renewal. He is the one who brings life. He is the rest. He brings that rest. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and he demonstrates it here. The Pharisees, they're not bringing rest. They're not bringing joy to anyone by making all of these extra rules about it. But here is Jesus bringing joy, bringing the rest. It's produced by God and his grace, demonstrated here beautifully by Jesus. The word Sabbath, it means rest, like a deep rest, a deep peace. It's a close synonym to the word shalom. In creation, we see that God rested from his work. That is, it's not like God got tired. It wore him out, so he needed to take a break. But he rested. He was, <clears throat> he was satisfied with his work. It was complete, and he rested. And it gives the pattern for us. Six days you work and then you rest. And, and it's a blessing, both actual physical rest from our labors, but more so pointing to our spiritual need to rest in the finished work of God, in the peace that He gives, in the shalom that He promises. <clears throat> you know, now we look back. And we see once again the finished work of God the Son on the cross. As he hung on the cross, as he lived the perfect life, all the way obedient to the point on the cross, and he hangs there and he cries out, it is finished. The work is complete. The rest has been won. Our confidence, again, is in the rest, the shalom that he has won, the completed work of Jesus. He's saying here that all your work and effort and weariness would not accomplish what Jesus Christ has accomplished. You rest fully upon Christ's work and you know that God is satisfied in you, that he, he sees you as right because of Jesus' work on your behalf. Just a couple applications, and we'll move to the table here. Hopefully you've, you've been able to draw out sort of the main application through the whole thing, Jesus being our rest. But a couple just to draw out. One, 
again with the Pharisees, just before we move on, is that that we have a measure of graciousness in the gray areas or the preferences of life. Pharisees, what may have started out as a noble cause of not wanting to break a law, so they set some protective boundaries and hedges around it, something we maybe do in our lives in different areas. But then these boundaries they set became just as important as the law of God. And they judged others on breaking them. And they judged their righteousness on having these boundaries and keeping these boundaries. And it became very works-oriented in that way. And it became a way to condemn others. And they missed the point of pursuing the Lord. We need to have a spirit of charity and graciousness when it comes to the way other people set boundaries in their lives, the preferences that they have compared to the preferences that you have. Sometimes we can really start to judge our righteousness on it and condemn others based on our own preferences. I think related to that, just a maybe hobby horse point, is that the Pharisees get like the tiniest little minutiae but they miss the big point all the time. It can be like that. If this is an argument you have, I don't mean to offend. But when people, is it a sin to go a mile over the speed limit? And you spend hours debating, is this, should I, could I? And it becomes these little details, something like that. Like we got to get, and you're missing the big picture, the big things that God has called you to, the important things of life, because we're so far out in the weeds in these tiny little details that that's what we matter about and measure our righteousness on. And we're missing kind of the glaring things that God has set before us to pursue, to make part of our lives of word and prayer, sacrament, church together. All right, last application. Sabbath and Lord's Day. I'm not going to do a whole theology exactly how they relate, but <clears throat> Sabbath looks forward Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest. They're all fulfilled in Christ. Now we have Lord's Day. Sabbath, obviously, in the New Testament, moves and makes um, some distinction from how it was organized in the Old Testament. Paul tells us in Colossians, we're not to judge one another according to Sabbath. But the Lord's Day begins to emerge in coordination which was with what Sabbath was. And a lot of what is spoken about in Sabbath is spoken about in Lord's Day. And in Lord's Day, we are commanded to do certain things. We, we are commanded to hear the word. We are commanded to celebrate the table baptism, those things that belong to Lord's Day. It becomes a day of rest again, that, that from our work and our labor, we have a day physically set aside to rest, and we have a day to come and declare, indeed, that we are resting in our Savior. We are commanded to honor the Lord's Day, because no matter what you think about it, the Lord is still the Lord of the Lord's Day. It is for you, but it is about Him. Just like Sabbath was for the people, but it was about him. God is clear that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That we don't let that become a habit. 
that we gather with the people of God. We go through the ordinary means of grace and we find our rest in Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does not return void. Lord, we <clears throat> thank you that indeed you are Lord of the Sabbath. Not just over the Sabbath, Lord, but Lord of the Sabbath. That you are our Sabbath rest. It is for us and we find our rest in you. Lord, I pray that <clears throat> we would not get hung up on, Lord, our traditions and things we add to our lives, Lord, but we would keep our eyes focused on the cross of Christ, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we find our rest in you. Lord, as we come to the table, we're going to be doing just that indeed, once again, to remind ourselves, Lord, that we come not because we've merited our way to the table, we come not celebrating our accomplishments, but we come to remind ourselves to participate in what you have done for us. Indeed, we are resting on your once-for-all completed work. It's the name of Jesus that we pray.